everyone. I'm Christina Roberts Enneking, and I am here to welcome you to the Real Eyes Realize podcast. This is a platform where we feature everyday people making ripple effects, actualizing love in their families, communities, and the world at large. Real Eyes Realize is a show where life and service dance together. For all of our podcast listeners, we invite you to sit back or take us with you on your walk or drive or however you enjoy your podcast. But listen deeply. We are here with our guests, here to listen to the sparks that have inspired action and heart-centered service and highlight ways in which we can also be motivated and inspired to create the positive ripple effects in our world. We're prepared to get real as well, authentic, courageous, and vulnerable through truth-telling and in that relating with one another to the things that matter most. So thank you for being here and enjoy this special treat our next episode just for you. I want to, first of all, welcome everyone back to our Realize Realize podcast series. Uh, Many of you, our listeners, know that we took the summer off and we have an incredible guest here kicking off the series again. Uh, We have Johnny Crowder, who is here with us. He is the CEO and founder of Cope Notes, and he is also the lead singer of Prison, the band, which we'll be talking about as well. Uh, So let me give a little bio of Johnny, and then we're going to get right into the interview. Uh, Johnny's kind of tagline is the real miracle is that he lived to tell the tale. And so Johnny Crowder is a suicide and abuse survivor. He's a TEDx speaker, a billboard charting musician, a certified recovery peer specialist, and the founder of CEO of Cope Notes, which is a text-based mental health platform that provides daily support to users in nearly 100 countries around the world. In the years leading up to these incredible leaps in advocacy, every day was a battle against schizophrenic hallucinations and suicidal ideation. After a lifetime of resisting professional care and shying away from his story, Johnny's curiosity flowered and the healing slowly began. Armed with 10 years of clinical treatment, a psychology degree from the University of Central Florida, and a decade of peer support and public advocacy through the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Johnny's youthful vigor for mental health has impacted millions of lives across the globe. So whether or not Johnny is commanding a keynote stage or touring with his heavy metal band Prison, which is an infectious positivity and firsthand experience that he shares, around multiple mental illnesses ranging from, ranging from bi- bipolar disorder, PTSD, OCD, and beyond. These all uniquely equip him to provide realistic yet hopeful insight into the pains and hardship. And he does so with authenticity, levity, and unconditional wit. So with this, Johnny, we welcome our mental health rock star here today. Thank you so much for being here. Heck yeah. I'm pumped. The people listening don't know that we talked about doing this like an entire year ago. We were like next year, let's do this. Like literally 365 days ago. It was literally to this week. And what's so interesting, you know, I was co-leading a retreat. We were in Nicaragua and just as a little inroads, when I was thinking back to that, here you were, Johnny, I remember us coming out of a sweat lodge and you started to move into your heavy metal vocal exercises and the howler monkeys up in the trees were actually in this cacophony of expression and you really let us all in howler monkey talk who knew right dude i love the fact that the moment we showed up so i had never been in nicaragua before and i was thinking like oh it's gonna be nice and peaceful it's in the jungle we're gonna be near the water we get there and these monkeys are screaming 
And I was like, wow, this is my kind of beach. <laughs> it was perfect. So, yeah, so here we are a year later and uh, the time is, it's all relative, right? So thank you so much for being here today. Really, really appreciate it. So there's so much to your bio. There's so much that we could talk about. Um, what I think that I'd love to just kick off with is when you think about sharing your story and we want to spend just a brief amount of time, more contextual of your history and what brought you to where you are today. So can you give us a little bit of a Reader's Digest roadmap of Johnny Crowder's life from the past, and then we'll really target on present and future? Yes. Yeah, so I always say that it's tough to sum up um, 30 years in 30 seconds, but I'll do my very best. So the backdrop of the story that you're going to hear in the podcast is that I grew up with a bunch of different mental illnesses my parents didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know what to do about it. So we all just kind of pretended that wasn't the case for as long as we possibly could until my behavior got so erratic that we were forced to do something about it. So I started treatment against my will in high school and started taking um, psychology courses as a teenager. And then I went to school for psychology. Then I started volunteering in the peer support uh, mental health advocacy space with NAMI. And then... Um, mental health just became more and more of a cornerstone of my life. So I went from thinking, if you were to go back to me when I was 14 and say, do you want to talk about mental health? I go, heck no, I will, I will do anything to get out of this. And now as a 30 year old, I'm like, please. So it has slowly become more and more of a cornerstone of my life to where now a majority of my day is oriented around recovery. So I went from the, the biggest, um, anti-fan of mental health to now the guy who's always trying to start a conversation about it. Isn't that interesting? Well, when you look at that, you talked about this big shift, right? Like from 14 year old Johnny to 30 year old Johnny, like who would know that the conversation would completely pivot 180 degrees. Um, when you think about kind of looking back and what formed you and there's that, you know, the thought about the hero's journey and, and your biggest wounds are what inform you. And then it becomes wisdom and then gifts that you offer back to the world. Uh, is there anything as a backdrop that you are open to share around some of those wounds that then now have become more wisdom for you? Yeah, the um, I think the reason I'm so passionate about health equity and people seeking uh, treatment and care is because for a long time, I thought... Um, I thought getting help was like the, the easy way out or like, oh, it's really more tough of me. It's more manly of me to stick it out and do it on my own. But actually through that, um, through the experience of trying to find the right therapist and trying to find the right medications and try like actually applying myself, I was like, first of all, this is, this is the real thing that takes toughness. This mm. is the real hard thing. But also I was at the same time pleased to find out that um, even though it was challenging, it wasn't nearly as challenging as doing it on my own. So it was simultaneously harder and easier than I thought. There were definitely moments where I thought like, uh, I meet a lot of people who have been hurt by the church and they say, I'm never going to, I don't believe in God because um, a Christian hurt me. And that was me for a long time. And I didn't realize that experiencing that pain actually makes you a better candidate for helping people through that. So 
kind of like you said, the only reason why I have license to speak about um, mental illness or abuse or anything. The reason why I'm passionate about it and the reason why people believe me yeah. is not because I went to school for it not because I have a certification, but because I've been there. And if you would have gone back to me and told me like, Hey, this pain is going to become your license. I'll be like, Hey, I don't care. This hurts <laughs> so it. bad, yeah. but I, I do wonder, um, if there would have been a, a greater degree of peace inside of me when I was going through it, if I knew, like if someone would have said, Johnny, in a few years, you're going to write a song about what you're going through right now. And that song is going to keep people from ending their own life. Mm. I would have been like, what? <laughs> okay. I have to get through this now because there's good that will come from this. I just can't see it yet. Isn't that incredible? And I, what I, what I really look at from what you just offered is like at the beginning, how much resistance there, there was, right. There's like, wait a minute, this is not the manly thing to do, or I mm -hmm. cannot need to be, need to be tough. And yet doing the deep work was one of the hardest elements of that. When you think back to those times where ego was fighting you and saying, you know what, we got to, we got a man up here. What kept you going? Um, <laughs> that what kept me pursuing treatment? Yes. Or wow. Um, I mean, that's a great question. Cause there was a big part of me that felt like it would never work for me. I, I, what I've found after doing peer support for so long is that everybody thinks that their type of pain is so unique that the existing um, forms of care won't actually accommodate them. They're like, no, no, no. I understand that uh, you have a clinician here who helps with PTSD, but not my type of PTSD, not to cover what I've been through. And there's almost a, a danger in that feeling of uniqueness mm. um, where we, we almost isolate ourselves. We say, you couldn't possibly understand me because you didn't go through the exact type of abuse that I've been through, or the exact type of illness that I have. And that is dangerous. That's what was pulling me out mm -hmm. of treatment. But what kept me in was honestly, this is going to sound like the nerdiest thing I've ever said, but it's so true health education, because mm -hmm. I was taking psychology courses and I was reading in textbooks that there were, I remember this one specific thing, and this is, you can extrapolate this out to understand how uh, facts like these affected my ability to adhere with treatment. Yes. Um, I read this one fact. It was in my high school psychology textbook. Wow. Um, and it said something, I, I might even get the statistic wrong. It's probably different now anyway, but it said something like 1% mm. of American adults live with schizophrenia. Mm. And some people might read that and go, what the heck? It's such a rare thing. Why me? I saw that and said, you're telling me there's 3 million people in mm. this country alone that understand what I'm going through. Are you kidding me? Wow. Statistically speaking, I've already met a bunch of them. We just haven't talked about it yet. So it became this extraordinarily liberating, like health education became liberating for me because it helped me feel less special. Yes. It's not just Johnny Crowder. That's this, you know, no one's going to call national geographic and say, Hey, we've never seen anyone like this before. No <laughs> people like clinicians and doctors and science and medicine. These people who work in these fields yes. 
have seen people like you and that doesn't make you less valuable. Yes. It should give you relief to know that you're not such a freak of nature that they don't know how to handle you. Mm. So that kind of kept me going back was thinking, wait a second, you're saying millions upon millions of people have recovered a degree of wellness that's allowed them to live a stable, functional lifestyle mm. through therapy and medication. That's it. It's kind of like when you find out um, like, wait, people get healthier by dieting and exercising. And if they can do that, I can do that. You know, I'm yeah. not doomed. That's incredible. That's incredible. One that you read a statistic that some people may take as this is so rare and you saw mm -hmm. it as all of these individuals deal with the same thing that I do. Like I am not a freak of nature. Yeah. Um, so what I get from that is there's a bit of set, you know, your mindset, that perspective. Um, and so when you look at your journey in terms of where it's taken you, have you noticed any mindset shifts that have happened now that you feel more in that, we'll call it more of that wisdom state now that you've kind of grown and been like, I never would have believed I would have been talking about stuff like this. Yeah. It's funny to hear about the, um, so the statistic story makes it sound like I was a really positive teenager and that was not the case. I used to, I'm not joking. I think I shared this, um, on the trip last year, I used to wear a t-shirt that said negative outlooks. And I thought I was so freaking cool. I thought I was like the most punk, like DIY, like hardcore dude. And now I'm literally wearing a shirt that says goodbye, negative thoughts on it right now. <laughs> what a shift. So, I mean, think about, think about the difference that has come from that. And I, first of all, I have to credit therapy and treatment, but I also think that a lot of the growth that I've done has come from actually desiring change because mm -hmm. my first year in treatment, dude, I was not participating. Mm -hmm. I was not cooperating. I was like a monster client. I would, I did not respect the people who were treating me. I had such a bad attitude, but then over time I started to really desire, I would see happy people and go, what the heck is wrong with that person? Don't they see everything I see? And then I would think, wait, what am I not seeing that they're seeing? Yes. Like maybe it's not that they're blind and I see everything. Maybe it's that I have my blinders on mm. and I'm not seeing something that they're seeing. And that hunger, that curiosity is what led to me reading books and listening to podcasts and asking questions of people. There's, I mean, the fact that we have resources today, like podcasts and YouTube um, I do so much learning online by myself that yeah. when I was 14, you, there was no such thing, Yeah, uh, maybe yeah. a library, but think of how much self-control it takes for a 14 year old to ask mom for a trip to, <laughs> for a ride to the library, to buy a self-help book or to rent a self-help book, probably not yeah. going to happen. Yeah. But I think the more available information has become about wellness. Mm -hmm. um, it's allowed me to kind of stoke that curiosity. So the same way that people get like a bug in their ear and I'm like, Oh, who's that guy who was in that movie uh, yeah. with Polly shore. And he was really short. And then they, they Google these people spend 25 minutes trying to find the answer to a trivial <laughs> thing like that. And I'm like, yo, if you apply that same degree of curiosity to something that's mm -hmm. causing you pain, in your life, you will be 10 times healthier. Oh, that's so beautiful. I, there's, there's a positive side, right? To the accessibility for sure of information. You know, when you think about the pivots that you've made and the changes and shifts, and, and it's still continuing, right? You're at 30, totally. you've got so much of your life in front of you. 
Um, so oftentimes we think about special mentors who have been on our path, people that have really been pillar individuals that have stood with us and stood by our side. I'm just curious if anybody comes to mind for you. Yeah, I so part of my story that is maybe a little non-traditional, and I talk about this in my first TED Talk, how like my recovery has been not the Hollywood version yeah. uh, where you have these big dramatic moments and these big wins and those pivotal, like uh, turning points in your story. I didn't really have a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. Um, it was more of like these small, tiny victories that nobody would have cared about. And I didn't even recognize as victories. So it was like a very mundane, frustrating, grueling kind of recovery. <laughs> right. And um, I, I think the same has been true on the mentor side. Like I've had a few, people who I really would start to trust and connect with, and then they would move or they would get married or have kids and we'd lose touch. So I've always wanted that type of long-term mentorship. Like I, I grew up without a really prominent um, like father figure. And I think part of me has always kind of been interested in finding that. Um, But in fact, it's been much more transient. It's been like, Oh, this person comes into my life and and maybe we have some really deep conversations for like six months or a year or two years or something. And then that person moves or we lose touch or something. Mm-hmm. And there is part of me that craves that longer term mentorship, but there's also something in me that is getting much better at accepting like people come into your life, people leave yes. your life. And if I try to grab them and hang on to them, I ruin the thing that made it valuable. Mm. So if I were to give you a real list of all of the people who have been instrumental in my recovery, it would be 500 people long. And most of them wouldn't even consider themselves as instrumental. Cause they were like, I had like three conversations with that dude. Yes. And I'm like, I know, but I held on to them, you yes. know? Yes. You know, there's, I, there was a book I read about like the trail angels in our life, the people that we meet, and it may be a conversation. It may be somebody that we look at and they see us in our eyes at a moment when we're in our deepest moment of despair and mm-hmm. it encourages us to move on. That's what I'm hearing you say that we have a lot of people in our lives that get to be that for us. if We just open our eyes to it. Totally. It's awesome. You, well, I wanted to pivot back to something you said too around, um, you know, little did I know that these hardships, these moments were going to be the thing that actually provided me with the strength that I have today. And even in our intake call, you talked about something around, um, you know, people are trying to optimize on trying to have as few challenges in life as possible. And then you kind of woke up one day and you said, well, maybe that's not what it's all about. Would you care to share more about that kind of insight that you've had recently? Yeah. I want to emphasize that it is recent. (laughs) So (laughs) it's certainly not like, you know, I'm not a teenager, like maybe this hardship will shape me into the type (laughs) of man I meant to become. Like I freaking wish I had this like Dalai Lama-esque approach um, to my teenage years, but puberty was not kind to me. I had a really rough (laughs) go of it. And then honestly, yeah, honestly, it's been, um, over the last maybe year or so. So I, I experienced some real um, trying to think out a word that's probably the most disruptive um, interpersonal challenges in my entire life happened late last year, early this year. So my living situation was disrupted. Um, I had a very dear family member go to the hospital. Um, I lost a family member uh, just before that um, to yeah. unexpected passing away. Um, so I had like a lot of really challenging 
um, you've heard that phrase. I think it's Muhammad Ali. I hope it is that says everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. Yeah. Or maybe it was like his, uh, boxing manager or Mike Tyson or something like that. It's a boxing analogy, but that's how it was. I was like getting healthier and healthier and working on myself and then freaking boom. Wow. And it was like, I, I literally got evicted over. It was like just the most unbelievable series of events. I had wow. multiple of my employees quit, um, just happenstance. It all happened to line up just like it can. Yes. Um, and in that experience, it was the first huge challenge that I had, um, where I didn't spiral into long-term hopelessness and despair, where I had a very clear understanding of like, this is a present circumstance that I am experiencing. Mm. This is not a, um, determination of what is going to happen in my life later. This does, this is not going to last forever. It was like the sense this understanding of impermanence, like this, this deep pain, the fear that I feel anyone who's had a family member in the hospital knows that there's fear. Like you have, I get goosebumps thinking about it. Like you think I can't lose this person. I'm so afraid of what life would be like without them. And I was like this fear and pain and sadness, um, will not exist at this intensity forever Mm -hmm. because I picture it kind of like, um, those very, um, those very acute feelings that we experience are high cost to the body. So it's kind of like they have very low fuel efficiency. So you can only experience those extreme feelings, those extreme acute feelings for so long Mm -hmm. before your body kind of runs out of juice and you have to like kick on the generator or something. So I was like, I know that eventually my body will stop feeling this degree of pain. And if I can hang it, if I can brush my teeth every day, if I can sleep every night, if I can shower every day, if I can exercise, if I can talk to friends, if I can do my work, if I can read something, I know that I can get through this. And then maybe six months outside of that. So this is like a month or two ago, I'm talking about. Um, I was learning that, um, or, or I heard this quote that I, I think it's from Tony Robbins, which is interesting because I never really listened to much of his stuff yeah. before. And I think the quote was, um, good times make weak people, weak people make hard times and hard times make good people. And good people make good times or something. It was like, I'm probably misquoting him, but it was something that gave me hope that maybe the thing that I'm experiencing is like building me into someone. And it was probably the first huge challenge that I faced where I had that wherewithal, like maybe a year from now, I will be so resilient and able to handle anything because I went through this. And now part of the reason why I do feel stronger is because I was like, yo, if I could go through that. Yes. Anything you hit me with, I can take because I just did something harder. Yeah. That's huge. And one of what that brings up for me is, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the samurai code, uh, but this is probably more of a kind of a Zen orientation, but it was, it's like fall down seven, get up eight. And that notion Mm -hmm. of resilience is like down we go. And I, I think what you talk about with these acute emotions and 
I've been hit this year with a series as well. It just lost and lost and lost. And it reminds mm-hmm. us of this impermanence. And yes, the acuteness of the sadness and fear and anger and all of those emotions. And it's like a big wave. And sometimes the wave is a huge maverick and you're like trying to ride it. And sometimes <laughs> you get pummeled. Like sometimes you yeah. go to the shore and you're like, I am all washed up. And I just need to like find a way to like crawl up to shore and just like whatever. Like, but there are times where you ride the wave and it feels like, oh my gosh, like I can get through this. So is that a little bit of what you're talking about too, from an analogy perspective? Yeah. I think the, the expectation kind of like when we were talking about optimizing for a life without challenges, Yeah, it's kind of like saying, I want, um, I mean, I picture it to like OCD, for example, mm-hmm. I grew up with pretty severe OCD. That's probably an understatement. And I insulated myself from a lot of germs. I was using hand sanitizer. I mean, every five minutes I was awake. I kept it on my belt loop. I wouldn't touch doorknobs. I didn't touch my food. I didn't touch other people. Like I insulated myself from so many germs for years that when I started, I started through therapy. I started like maybe touching a potato chip and eating it and going like, Oh no. And started like experiencing germs. I got sick every month or two for years because Mm. I was finally being exposed to all these germs that I'd insulated myself from. So when people optimize their life to have as few challenges as possible, it's basically saying, okay, but you are really weakening your immune system. And once real life starts happening, you're going to get sick all the time. So looking back, I'm like, I actually think more quote challenges for my immune system would have actually made me more resilient long-term. I'm not saying you need to lick a doorknob, but you know, there's balance there. There is balance. And what I'm hearing is there's an exposure, like the exposure Mm -hmm. therapy that you explored and experimented with. And you were brave enough to explore experiment. And some of that experimentation, and it kind of seems to me where you are now is this mode of inquiry is like really what is serving you. Would you say that's about right? Yeah. I have this attitude, um, that I've been adopting over the last couple of months that has helped me a lot. And it is basically can be summed up by saying, Ooh, interested to see what happens next. So like, I mean, you can say that to anything, like you win the lottery. Ooh, I'm interested to see what happens next. Or you lose the biggest job opportunity of your life. Ooh, I'm interested to see what happens next. And almost like you're watching a movie and you watch the main character experience a a true challenge and you go, Ooh, what's he going to do? Where's he going to go? Obviously something's going to happen. I'm watching a movie. Like, it's not like nothing's going to happen. Something's going to come from this. What is the thing that's going to come? Yeah, that's awesome. I love that so much. When you, I, what I want to kind of go to now is this, it's a great segue. I think about, Ooh, like what's going to happen next. Tell us about how you got started with Coke notes. You're the CEO and founder. Tell us more about what that is for listeners that don't know and how, how it began and then what it is today that you see going on with Coke notes. Yeah. So the short version of what we do is we use daily text messages to interrupt negative thought patterns Mm. and train the brain to think in healthier thoughts over time. So it's just one text a day at a random time. And your brain literally forms new neural pathways associated with coping skills and resilience. 
It is the simplest mental health resource I've ever seen in my life. And that's because I don't have a ton of patience. So I want <laughs> things to be easy to use. Yes. Um, and I will admit that when I started it, I had no desire to run a company. Um, I had no real plans of monetizing it. Uh, the original version was free and it failed because it was free. Cause I didn't have any freaking money to pay people to help me. Um, so early on, I was just, I was working in peer support and I was learning about all this stuff in school. So I went to school for, um, psychology. I was studying abnormal psychology and neuroscience. Wow. I was learning about how the brain can physically change based on new stimulus. Yes. I mean, your brain, it's like, I mean, think of your brain as like this big thing of Play-Doh. And when you experience things, it kind of shapes itself a little differently. So it kind of gets pressed on and shaped and molded. And I was like, dude, I love this. I love the fact that your brain can change, but I also love that in peer support, you're talking to a real human who can talk, talk to you about things in plain English that you both understand you've been through. So my, my brain loved the idea of neuroscience and neuroplasticity. My heart loved the idea of peer support, that empathy. And I was like, man, I want to combine those two things. And I want to do it in such a way that it doesn't require me to reach out for help Yeah, because every resource it, you've heard this a hundred times. People say, listen, Christina, if you're struggling, just reach out for help. Mm. And whenever I hear that, I think, oh, why didn't I think of that? If Mm. it's that easy, it's kind of like saying, um, Christina, if you break your ankle, just get on your bicycle and ride eight miles to the hospital and they can help you there. And you're like, um, I don't know how to explain this to you, but if my ankle is broken, it's going to be really tough to ride my bike. So for too long, we've been saying, if you have a challenge, you reach out. And so Cope Notes' whole ethos is this is a set it and forget it mental health tool. Mm. You make one decision to subscribe and we will show up every single day for the rest of your life. Mm. You don't have to make a conscious decision to engage with us ever again. We will show up. And that consistency is what is necessary to form new neural pathways. So uh, when I went to school... And I learned that the brain could change. And I found out that my brain wasn't changing. I was like, what's missing? And what was missing was the consistency that I couldn't offer myself. Wow. That's incredible. It's incredible for so many reasons. One of just kind of how it came about and the birth of it in terms of you noticing, gosh, that asking for help is oftentimes the barrier. Mm -hmm. What would happen if we just showed up for people and I can imagine you've heard a million testimonial story, stories of people that you've served and helped and supported. Um, I'm curious when you think about COVID, and I have two teenagers, right? One 15 and a 17-year-old. All I hear in schools and whatnot post-COVID is how much mental health has been accelerated as a challenge. Um, I'm just wondering for you, what do you see since you're in this industry around mental health in our country and our world today? Yeah. The, the thing I'll I'll share this kind of quick, this is going to sound kind of pessimistic, but it's genuinely the way I feel I've seen this happen before. Mm -hmm. I've seen big spikes in, um, sentiment around mental health where there's, you know, like Justin Bieber tweets about depression and then Mm -hmm. it's like, Oh, it's trending and it's on every news site. And, you know, it gets a million retweets or whatever. 
But then the next day or the next week or the next month, there's a new hot button issue and, and mm-hmm. mental health gets forgotten about. No one actually takes action. And what I'm seeing now is people getting to the point where they say, man, I have ignored this in my own life and in my own family for 11 years. Yeah. And I've done the very best I could to bury my head in the sand, but COVID almost blew away all the sand. There's no more sand to bury your head in. You're like, golly, man, I guess my old strategy of ignoring it won't work anymore. And so now my options are to actively do something about it or neglect it. And when people are faced with those opportunities or those decisions, they're like, man, it's much more binary. So I think we are seeing we are seeing action. I pray to God that I can be a catalyst to make sure that that action doesn't slow down once whatever new hot topic pops up in the media or in conversations in the house. Like, Hey, just because, um, there's a new Netflix series that you love doesn't mean we get to stop talking about mental health. Now, you know, Mm -hmm. I want this action to be get action to be get action. Yeah. Well, you are one of those change agents and catalysts that are making that happen. And uh, just really wanted to kind of highlight in that perspective is you talked about it being maybe a little bit pessimistic and I don't see that at all. I actually see that as more hopeful is that when all the sand blows away, what are we left with? Do we want to heal or do we want to stay stuck? And you're saying there's a real option here relative to healing and there's real help here. Um, So we will in our show notes and also our online resource hub, uh, we'll, we're going to just post how to get involved with Cope Notes, what it is, because I think it's something that we really want to highlight out of this podcast and offer to our guests. It's That's, it's an amazing company. Yeah, I, I appreciate it a ton. And the, the whole point of it is how do we make that action that I'm talking about? Action begets action begets action. Yeah. Um, what you do is informed by who you are. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cope Notes not only helps with the behavior part, who you like what you do, but also helps with more of that belief and thought structure thing, which is a big component of who you are. It's a huge component. So I want to, I'm curious how, so we talked about cope notes and then you also do positivity messages in a heavy metal band prison. Like, can you tell us a little bit about that and like what it is that you really optimize on relative to being out on the road and in this band? Yeah. So this is the part where most people listening to the podcast think that they switched into another podcast on accident. Like they, <laughs> they butt dialed into a different episode. Yep. Um, but this is the same episode. So it's funny. I, still Johnny I grew Crowder, up, right? This is, still yeah, you. I grew up loving heavy metal. So okay. I, I mean, I was, you know, I'm in sixth grade listening to like Slipknot and corn and system of a down and Lincoln park. But then by seventh and eighth grade, I'm listening to like brutal guttural death metal. It's just like the heaviest stuff you've ever heard. And so now into high school, I start listening to a lot of like hardcore and punk and alternative metal. And I had this passion for music and especially heavy music. I always loved music. I started playing guitar when I was eight years old. Wow. Um, And I mean, playing like practicing and riffing and writing stuff. But by high school, I was like, if I don't join a band, Uh. I'm, 
I'm not going to use my time on something productive. So I need to find a musical outlet. So um, when I was in high school, I joined my first band and we started playing. Uh, my parents did not understand it at all. Um, <laughs> and neither did my family and most of my friends. And then um, when I went to college, my band actually got signed while I was there and I started touring full time. So I went from playing, um, you know, maybe a week at a time or two weeks at a time to then doing like a six week tour, uh, an yeah. eight week tour, like a full North American tour. And then we started being out for month, like six months a year, eight months a year. And it was like, it swallowed up so much of my life, which made recovery really challenging. Uh-huh. I can um, because I'm not, at, this is kind of before telehealth, right? So I'm not just like, uh, on zoom with my therapist, right? Like I'm completely yes. out of the state for months at a time and having to take my medication at the same time, even though I'm switching time zones was a challenge. Mm-hmm. And I became, you know, I'd say for the first seven or eight years of doing music, music was about me. It was about me saying what I needed to say. It was my outlet. And then when I started prison, my current band, so my last band was called Dark Sermon and that band broke up. Um, There was nothing I could do about it. Everyone just started having babies and getting jobs and they were just like, screw this. I can't live like this anymore. And I was like, no, I still want to do music. (laughs) And so I started prison and my posture was completely different. It was like, if dark sermon was for me, how do I make prison for the people? Like, how do I leverage this as a platform to serve people who feel like they're not understood? They're not heard. They're not represented. So the whole uh, attitude of prison became like, we are, it's, it was almost like a FUBU attitude, like for us, by us, like this is a band made up of people just like you. And that spirit has carried on. Like we've written about sobriety and abuse and sexual consent and, um, self-harm and suicide prevention and, um, eating disorders and all these things that people feel that, uh, the heavy metal community doesn't really talk about, but we all experience. So we have definitely become that band where, like our, if you go to a prison show that I'll, I'll end on this. If you go to a prison show, it is not unlikely for you to see people hugging each other in the mosh pit mm-hmm. and sharing deep life stories and crying and going, I know, man, you're so right to each other. Like wow. we literally see our fans acting totally differently from the way that people think metal fans act. These people are compassionate and kind and supportive and go out of their way. We've had fans write letters to us saying like, I met my lifelong best friend mm. through one of your concerts because prison fans are just different. So it's such a cool thing to watch unfold. Oh my gosh. The connectivity, the connective tissue is what I'm seeing. And it just gets to be the bond, which is the bond that we're all craving love, mm-hmm. support, connection, compassion, even in the midst of the hardest times, in fact, especially in the midst of the hardest oh, times yeah. of our lives. That's so wild. I'm going to ask just a couple more questions and then we'll round it out. Um, Cause right now with where you sit in your life, I'm curious about this thought about what breaks your heart and what warms it in life. Mm. Good question. Probably what breaks my heart is that people right now think this is just the first thing that comes to my mind yeah. 
um, people think that their life as it is today is a determinant for what their life is going to be like tomorrow or the next day. Like they feel this permanent sense of hopelessness from an impermanent situation Mm -hmm. like that feeling of not being sure if things can ever get any better is, is a prison that is a cell. And I, my favorite phrase, I said it in my second Ted talk. uh, My favorite phrase in the world is tomorrow might be better Hmm. because it's technically never not true. Yeah. Like there is a chance that tomorrow might be better. And I want to communicate that to everybody in the world, because if you don't feel like tomorrow might be better, you're not as willing to apply yourself. You're not as willing to connect with other people. You're not as willing to learn or even value yourself, make healthy choices. But if there's a chance, if there's even a 1% chance that tomorrow might be better, you're like, ah, man, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have some drinks tonight because tomorrow might be better. Right. Mm. Like, and I want to be ready for that. I want to be there for that. Like that little glimmer of hope I want people to feel. And it it currently breaks my heart that there are people who think that because they've maybe lived 30 years without feeling that hope that they won't feel it in their 31st year, you know? Yeah. Amazing. And I think what I want to highlight too, is we're going to boot do links to your Ted talks on all of our show notes that people can access those. I know that in listening to you on that stage, Um, It just was incredibly inspiring down to like the cells of my being. It was like, here's somebody that's talking in layman terms has had this trajectory of the past. That was what you would think would kind of like brings most people down. And you're like this shining star that's come up and says, Hey, there's a possibility there's hope. And if you just look at me and notice that like I made it, like you might be able to have a glimmer of like what your version of making it is. It's pretty incredible. I, I always want to communicate that because when I was growing up, what I didn't have is examples of people who had recovered from the illnesses that I was diagnosed with. I saw schizophrenia as a death sentence. Mm. I saw I had very severe bipolar, um, very severe OCD. I was like, I'm never going to be able to drive. Yeah. I won't be able to go on a date. I won't be able to get a job. I even, there was a time when I had such difficulty speaking in coherent sentences that I would just stay quiet. Because my thoughts would get so jumbled in my head. And I thought, I'm screwed. If this is my lot in life, I should just go ahead and wrap it up as soon as I can, because I'm not ready for another 80 years of this. Yeah. And I always want to communicate to people like, listen, I am the odds of us having some shared experiences are pretty high. And also, the odds of you being at least as equipped as me to handle this are also pretty high because if you actually dug into my background, you'd go, holy crap. Like why on earth did this person become healthier? How? And honestly, it's with tools that are publicly available. It's not, I don't think it's, I think the biggest misconception is that people look at people living in recovery and think, oh, that's just that's because they're really smart or that's Mm. because their mommy and daddy had money or that's because, you know, there's always a a list of reasons why it couldn't be you. And I'm like, dude, I used to say that stuff about other people, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's how much of our thought pattern that, that feels inaccessible holds us back from actually something that may be accessible. 
Mm. And that's, that's, I think what I love about cope notes. It's, it's a text message that shows up on your phone daily, different times in the day too. And so it's one of those situations that typically I'm sure it comes across as, oh, when I needed it most, there it was. It's like a message from the universe. Yeah, we've had, we actually had um, one person fill out the contact form on our website complaining. And he said, Hey, I think that you're monitoring me because of how on target some of these messages are with what's going on in my life. And we had to email him back and go, we don't collect any personal data. We don't even have your name on file. It's all anonymous. Like what you're experiencing is your brain making sense of these text messages. Like you, you need to give yourself credit because we're not doing anything nearly as cool as what your brain is doing when you read these messages. And he was actually like, no way. That's so cool. So (laughs) it turned out fine, but it was funny to receive that text. And actually my, my employee at the time was like, Hey, do we monitor people's data? And I was like, what, (laughs) what are you talking about? And she explained it to me and I was like, this is wild. Wow. I love that. I love, I think that is a great note for us to kind of just look at not ending. Cause I want to ask you a series of our collective questions, but I just want to just kind of close this with how can our listeners best support you, Johnny, you support so many people in this world. What are the ways that we can help to amplify and lift you? Holy crap. I don't think anybody, so no one ever checks on the caregiver. Yeah. Like freaking ever. Someone asked me how I was feeling the other day and I was stumped. I was like, dude, I can't remember the last time somebody asked me that, like, really? So, um, I really appreciate the question. And my, my immediate gut reaction is to go, Oh, well, the best thing you could do for me is to help you. And I do feel that way, but I want to answer the question directly and be a good receiver, which I'm working on right now. Um, so the things that could help me the most, I mean, definitely my career and my advocacy is the most important thing to me in my life right now. So if there's an opportunity to potentially share, um, one, one of my Ted talks with someone who you feel might benefit from it or, um, share a like you can buy a gift subscription of Coke notes for a friend or family member. I am telling you, we've seen that bring back together estranged family members who didn't talk for like a decade. Someone bought someone else a Cope Notes subscription in it. And then they took a a family picture together for Christmas and sent it to their parents. And they were like, what, how did you guys start talking again? I've Mm -hmm. seen miracles happen from that. So please, the the thing that you can see how much joy it brings me, it is for other people, but there is an element of it that brings me life and makes me want to commit even further to advocacy. So if there's an opportunity for you to share, Mm -hmm. um, either one of my Ted talks or, um, potentially buy a gift subscription for a friend or family member that, um, that story of hope and restoration and healing and stuff. If you can share that with us or with me, it doesn't, you don't have to include names or anything, but that is what keeps my team working every Mm -hmm. day. It's what keeps me waking up um, to tackle these big challenges. So, um, yeah, I think those are the things that come to mind. That's like, I think that would be so life-giving to me is to hear Mm -hmm. the fruit of like what you learned from the Ted talk or what your, what your friends and family members reactions were when you bought them a gift subscription. Oh my goodness. I love that. I love that. What your ask is, so to speak in this openness of receiving is stuff that just propagates more fuel for going and doing all of what you're doing 
in the world and just impacting and touching so many millions of individuals in a positive way. Uh, so thank you, Johnny, for all that you do. And uh, thank you. I know I personally will commit to um, doing some of what you just offered, um, actually all of the above. So thank you. That's awesome. So what I'd like to do is end this with a series of what I call collective questions. It's questions that we we ask all of our guests, and it's always fun to see what people come up with. So completely spontaneous off the hip. Um, so my first one is, what are you currently watching or reading these days? Ooh, so I'm reading. Um, this will tell you exactly the type of person I am. Uh-huh. So I'm reading um, Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. Uh, trying to learn about all of these people who have accomplished um, great feats of physical health, of um, financial abundance, of um, wisdom, like these mm. amazing authors and um, innovators and technologists. Um, so that's really fascinating. It's like a 700 page book and I'm like 250 <laughs> it's pages a in. Tough one to get through. Um, yeah, it's gigantic. <laughs> so I'm reading that, but then also this will tell you the other side of me. I'm watching Mr. Show on HBO, this <laughs> old sketch comedy show with Bob Odenkirk and David Cross. Um, <laughs> and I'm kind of like dual wielding, right? Like when my brain wants something to chew on, um, I'm, I'm reading tools of Titans. And then when I'm, when my brain needs something to like chill out on, I watch Mr. Show. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that. I love that. I love that. Um, when you think about, okay, if you could eat dinner and engage in dialogue with anyone past or present, who comes to mind? This is such a cop-out answer, but it's so true. Anyone who says that Jesus is not in their top three for, for a person you'd want to have dinner with is just mind blowing. Like, don't you have a million questions for that guy, whether you believe whether you're a Christian or not, don't you have a million questions for that guy? So Jesus would be my number one for sure. Oh my gosh. I love that. So good. Yeah. A million questions. Somebody the other day just shared with me, they're like, you know, what would happen if everyone just realized that, you know, Jesus was like us or like a shamanic individual that was doing these things, you know, in terms of like fostering with his apostles, how do we go and be our best versions of ourselves? And it just seems like this individual that you could hang out with, right? Oh, totally. Totally. I'm so curious. Yeah. I love that. When you think about practices that you might do or say to yourself, when challenges do arise that remind you how you want to show up, what comes to mind? Ooh, that's good. I do um, something that I've been saying a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like every time I face a challenge, is I go, you, w- I say, we live and we learn. <laughs> we live and we learn. And I also do my very best to call myself buddy at all times. Uh-huh. So it's something that helps me not be so critical of myself. Um, so if I'm sometimes, and I do, I have done this in the past. I will say something critical of myself, Mm -hmm. like about some failure, something I think I should have done or that I did wrong. But if you call yourself buddy, if you end every sentence that you say to yourself with the word buddy, you can feel the dissonance Ah. because you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, Oh man, you're looking, you're looking really out of shape, buddy. You're like, Ooh, was I just mean? Because the juxtaposition of that insult and buddy kind of makes your ears perk up. So I have a very committed practice of saying buddy to myself as often as possible. Um, And that actually helps me encourage myself. So every once in a while I'll say like, good work, buddy. Or like, man, you really applied yourself there, buddy. Like, and that it might sound cheesy, but that especially people living with suicidal ideation now, 
Um, can you imagine getting to a point where you call yourself buddy? You don't despise yourself. You actually want to support yourself. It's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. You know what comes to mind with that? And then we'll do our final question. You have a tattoo on the back of your neck, don't you? Can you yeah. tell us a little bit more about what that says and the reason you've had it in that placement? Yeah. So can people, are people seeing video right now? Or just uh, Not seeing video now because it'll be audio, but we'll do video clips and this okay. is a video clip we could add. Okay. So I'm going to first see the shirt that I was talking about earlier. If it's goodbye, gonna be negative videos, thoughts. goodbye, negative thoughts. And then tell me if this is in video or not, because I okay. can't see. Yes, it is. It's so it says matter. Yes. And the reason I got that tattoo is because I knew when I started doing advocacy that there are people who will listen to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of those people listen to me because I have tattoos, because I wear a t-shirt and jeans, because I'm in a metal band, um, because I'm young and other people will not listen to me for those same reasons. Mm. They say, well, I don't know if I trust that guy. And I don't know. I mean, look at him. How much could he know anyway? And I've heard people say these things in real life about me. Um, and I knew that because I couldn't do advocacy to everybody, mm -hmm. I could only do advocacy to the people who were willing to hear from me. I was like, I want to give those people something who would never have a conversation with me anyway. People who are looking at me from behind who wouldn't actually look at me face to face. So I was like, I still want to give those people something, even if they don't like to me, even if they don't want to talk to me. Yes. So this was my message for them. That's deep, buddy. That's deep. <laughs> that's <Awesome>. deep, buddy. <laughs> Good thinking, buddy. I swear. I talk to myself like that all the time. I think that's fabulous. I really, I think that that is an amazing because it's an action we can do. And then, like you said, the dissonance is felt. And so we start to then train the brain to be like, what would I do for buddy? And what would I say to buddy? Oh yeah. So, um, my last question for you, our final is what are you grateful for today? Today? I want to be really intentional with my answer. Yeah. I am grateful that I'm feeling more comfortable being myself, like mm -hmm. in this interview, whenever you do an interview, especially once you are like in the tech world and you're like a CEO, there can be this pressure to be this like postured, um, proper stiff upper lip, mm -hmm. um, show no mercy kind of dude, like take no prisoners. And mm -hmm. I love that I'm getting more comfortable with kind of running up against that and being like, yeah, but that just doesn't seem like fun and it doesn't seem authentic and it doesn't seem like why I started this in the first place. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to laugh and smile and goof off, um, and be vulnerable in an interview. But on, on the other side of that same coin, I'm thankful for the willingness inside of myself to potentially compromise face quote unquote, like professional face in order to potentially give somebody hope because that's such a fair trade, you know? Johnny, thank you. I'm so grateful for your time and your energy and your gift, the gift of you offering so much wonderful insights today. So thank you for being part of our Real Eyes, Real Eyes audience. You really are out there creating positive ripple effects in this world, actualizing love that we all have the potential for feeling and realizing. So thank you. I love it. I'm so glad we did it. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for tuning in to another impactful conversation here on Real Eyes, Real Lies podcast. We hope you take some time to let the wisdom of the stories that were shared here today sink in. And we welcome you to engage with us on our social channels at realize.love on Instagram, at realize.love on Facebook, and also our virtual voicemail on SpeakPipe. You can call us and let us know individuals you'd like to hear us interview or ideas for stories that you think would be impactful for others to hear. We also have links in the show notes and we invite you to go to our website, realeyes.love, where you will find an online resource hub. It is our gift to all of our listeners to provide you the resources and support in making your own ripple effects actualizing love in this world. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing all that you do. And remember, be true. Be real, be you, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.